This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Greetings. Hello. I'm Ray Harkins, and you're listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm looking at you, who's reading a book and also listening to this show, or I'm speaking to you, person on the treadmill at the gym, or maybe you're just driving, because that's where most people listen to podcasts. But thank you for joining us on another exciting week of a in-depth dive into independent music, punk, hardcore, indie rock, emo, whatever you want to classify it as, that's what we talk about here. So thank you. And last week, I apologize for the hecticness of the intro and the outro. I uh, actually had more than one person email me or reach out to me and say, hey, are you okay? (laughs) Yes, I'm okay. I just was uh, packing too much into a very short period of time. And I was thinking that like, oh, yeah, I can probably record this like when I land at like, you know, 11 at night in Chicago. Oh, it's a bad idea. So I appreciate for those of you that were concerned about my well-being, I am fine. I am back in my normal recording scenario. And um, yes, now we're the, the, every, everything's this, in this comfortable place. So uh, yeah, thank you. Anyways, the guest this week is Thomas Pearson. He is the vocalist for a now-defunct hardcore band called Foundation. And Foundation were uh, an incredibly important band to me. I feel like they took the banner of straight-edge hardcore and waved it very proudly, very prominently for many years, late, late 2000s, early, or I was about to say late aughts, early 10s. <laughs> I don't know what the you call this, this decade that we're in, 10s? I guess that makes sense. But anyways, I've wanted to have Thomas on for quite some time. And uh, basically, we were c- corresponding maybe about a month or two before the band actually played their last show. And he was like, hey, let's let me get through this and then we can uh, talk and I can have a little more clarity and perspective over the whole thing so i was like hey sounds absolutely perfect so we were able to do that over skype one day but i gotta talk about some other stuff first so uh, there like i said i was in chicago and it was incredible and the thing that i realized that uh, makes this weird independent music culture so cool is the fact that you know i find that most people that get attracted to this and you know playing bands like they tend to travel and adventure And it's always funny for people that, you know, are part of the normal world and don't have the same sort of experiences as we do. I find it so bizarre that, like, I can go to any major metropolitan city and have a few people that I know there. Because most people, you know, they travel and they don't know anybody there because they don't have family and they've never been to the city before. And uh, it's just always funny because, you know, here I am, all my coworkers are like, oh, you know, you staying in our hotel and I was like, no, I'm staying with my friend who I've known for 15 plus years. Shout out to you, Mike. And um, it's just, it's so much fun because obviously I'm able to hang out with a friend, not only on top of that, get a free place to stay, but have more of an experience with the city. And uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's fun. I just really, really enjoy the fact that music is this communal thing. It brings us all together. We bounce off one another. We end up in different places. But um, yeah, ultimately that's kind of what, what, really holds us together when we travel to different places and are like, oh, hey, I'll be able to meet up with this person or I can see this friend. Or even if you don't know anybody, you travel to a record store, which is what I did. I went to Reckless Records, amazing store. I also went to Chicago Diner, great vegan food. And I met a person there 
Jeff. Jeff, I want to say. I'm totally blanking on his name. Used to play in Expire. Real good dude. He just came up to me and was like, hey. He was actually working there and said, uh, hey, is that a sick of it all polo you got on there? And I said, yes, it is. And so we started to converse and realized that our paths have crossed before that. And anyways, just music. Music is great, isn't it? <laughs> it's diverting from music, but another live communal experience that I really enjoyed recently <clears throat> was seeing Louis C.K., I saw him at the, or not the Hollywood Forum, the Inglewood Forum, where the Lakers and I think the LA Kings used to play. I could be wrong, but uh, it was just unbelievable. Fortunately, I had amazing tickets, like, you know, four rows back, just because I hopped on the presale, like, immediately. I'm not saying that because I'm cool, but it was such uh, an engaging experience because, um, you know, it felt like he was playing to 500 people, even though there was, I want to say, 13,000. It was a ton of people, completely sold out. And he's incredible. He's one of the most talented people in that sphere and even outside of that sphere. He's just an incredibly creative brain. And to watch a person work on that level, uh, I felt like I was witnessing something special in the same way that, you know, when people saw Richard Pryor and Steve Martin, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, they saw these, you know, balls of fire and just these ideas bouncing off of themselves and other people and oh, just amazing so a bunch of amazing stuff i just wanted to put it all out there so anyways uh here is thomas and i'm very excited to bring you this conversation because like i said foundation was an incredibly important band to me and uh, i'm excited to bring this to you so here's thomas and i will talk to you after the episode is over So like I, uh, I was all in on foundation like almost immediately. I think it was uh, it was a combination of obviously enjoying the music, but then the there's nothing cooler than when you grab onto an aesthetic of a band as well. And those Matt Miller shirts, the photo series that you guys did, you know, earlier in the band's career, I was mm-hmm. just like, holy shit, it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And like. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else has obviously expressed their uh, love for those shirts and or the fact that you guys did multiple ones of those. Um, but I just I love the combination of those two things. I, I presume that was a very uh, uh, intentional uh, step for you guys to uh, int- introduce those uh, shirts to the world and the fact that you're working with a, a longtime friend. Um yeah, okay, so just for clarification, are you talking about the This Is War shirts that have like the live picture on the front? I am absolutely talking about those, yes. Okay, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Matt was, uh, you know, he was taking pictures at our shows to begin with. And at, at the time, I feel like he was the only photographer that was really taking pictures in the way that he was doing it. You know, he like, he'd set up like off camera lighting and have all this like, um, like, you know, they would sync together. So when you, he would take these pictures of the room, it just, was filled with so much light and everything was crisp and had all this crazy detail. And I was like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta get a matte picture on a shirt. Like it's the best looking, you know, the best looking photo of a hardcore band I can think of. And it just kind of evolved from there. And I didn't want it to just be, you know, kind of the typical, like, okay, here's the front man. Here's the crowd. He's pointing the mic out and there's some text. I wanted like everybody to be included in it. So the very first one we did was of our guitar player, Andrew, and then we kind of worked our way through each member of the band. And then we finally did like a group shot one of this really great picture that this dude Ken took at United Blood. Um, 
And then, yeah, that's kind of how, how it started. I wanted to put the picture on the front and then put the text on the back, which kind of throws a lot of people off. Right, right. I, I, I think what I think what made it so, uh, I guess, interesting for me too, just obviously as a person that you know didn't know any of you guys and only kind of tangentially knew Matt, was just the fact that it was a. Uh, Obviously, it was a deliberate step in a direction that was like, okay, everybody is seeing the live hardcore shirt photo. Like, that's tried and true. Like, everybody can do that at any point in their band's life. But the fact that you guys obviously, like you said, kind of twisted it around and were like, okay, we want to utilize it in a different way that, um, you know, might not necessarily make the most sense because, yeah, like you said, the band's name is on the back of the shirt and might, maybe not easily recognizable. Um, but I just I, I really identified with that. I mean, have other people obviously come to you and been like, oh, I love those shirts or am I the only lone voice in the wilderness? No, no. People definitely like them. And they they uh, it's like they collect them, too, because, like I said, there's one for each member of the band. And um, actually, we did. Um, <clears throat> it's funny you bring this up. Like, this is where we're starting at, because when uh, we played our last show last weekend, we did a secret show the night before. And at that secret show, I made two of those shirts in like really like obnoxious colorways, like an orange shirt and a purple shirt that had like blue and yellow ink on them. Uh-huh. And I did them for the two members of the band who actually didn't get didn't get them while they were in the band. So previously, our our friend Tim Hot played bass for us, and that was on the Hang Your Head recording. And for this like crazy summer, we, we always call it the Die Hard Summer because we did three full U.S. tours back to back to back in this one summer on that seven inch. And he did all of those with us, but he never got a shirt with him on it. And then our uh, our uh, other bass player, uh, Wildcat, who took over took over after uh, Tim and played on When the Smoke Clears and basically toured with us up until about two years ago when he moved to California. Uh, maybe even three years ago now. Anyway, a, 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 an amount of time that has passed. Right. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't get one either. And I always like kind of felt bad about that. So for this show, I made those two shirts, one with Tim playing bass on the front of it and one with Wildcat actually playing guitar, which was an in- instrument he didn't play in the band on the front of the shirt. But for one tour, he did play guitar for us. That's amazing. That's a cool, that's a, that's a very nice uh, nod of respect to the, those people that obviously played with you guys when probably very few people cared. Yes. <laughs> and like, you know, they were, they were there in like a, uh, you know, the, the not, the not, I mean, they weren't bad. we we always had, you know, awesome shows on tour, but we also had some bad, bad shows and they were there for, for a lot of those. So, right. Right. Um, the, the thing that also endeared me about, uh, what it was that you guys were, uh, doing not only musically, but just the, uh, the, the sense of pride. I mean, obviously not only, uh, the band, but you, yourself personally with the, uh, with Atlanta and obviously waving that banner so high of, we're from Atlanta and there's a potent, vibrant, hardcore scene here. And we're trying to uh, make sure that everyone is aware of that and pays attention to it. Um, did, did, was that just like kind of a a natural evolution of the band or was that kind of your uh, uh, mission statement from uh, the get go? I can, I can honestly say that that was probably a mission statement for us when we first, when we first uh, began the band. Um, The thing about Atlanta and, you know, and I can, I can speak a lot on this because I'm from here. I'm like raised here. I've been going to shows here the entire time is that Atlanta's always had a really great hardcore scene. Like awesome bands have, have come up here. Um, we've always taken care of touring bands when they come here and, you know, tried to make the best shows possible, real connected scene. 
but unless you you come here and you experience that, you just don't know about it. And I think that's the case for a, a lot of places that aren't like Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or Boston or even or DC. Even you know, you just don't know about it unless you go there. So when we started the band, and we're like, all right, well, we're going to tour. Like we're going to leave this state and we're going to go places. That was almost like priority number one is to be like, at least for me, every time I got on stage, I was like, we're foundation and we're from Atlanta. And I might, I might say that 10 times during a set because I wanted people to know, like, that's where we're from. We're from Atlanta and we love that place. And we want you guys to all know about it. Right. I just, I love that too, because I mean, my, uh, my experience with the city was definitely like, uh, I, I used to play in a band and we, uh, toured with, uh, well, technically they were downpour, but obviously turned into power and the glory. Um, and it was, that, that was my first sort of introduction to the, that's proverbial scene and obviously jock records and everything that's kind of, you know, circled that area. Um, but I did always have that uh, real sense of banner waving from pretty much everybody that's existed in that city or played in a band, um, which I, I find so uh, endearing because, you know, a lot of bands like whatever, uh, you know, that are surrounding a particular metropolitan area, um, you know, maybe say they're from that area, but they're not actually from that area. And that, so it's like, you know, a band from L.A., but they live like, you know, an hour south or whatever. And so it's yeah. like I always like it when people can really, uh, you know, put that stake in the claim and be like, no, like we're from Atlanta and we love this. And this is why we're trying to take care of the scene. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny too because uh, not a lot of us actually grew up in the downtown area. We, you know, Atlanta's like um, Atlanta has a little bit of like a Southern California vibe where it's like you have the city itself and then you have kind of the suburban sprawl around there, but it's a lot of sprawl. So a lot of us grew up either north or south, just north or south of the city, about twenty minutes. But if we don't we don't have. Um, like satellite scenes here. Everything takes place in the city. So you go downtown for shows. That's where everything's happening. That's where you go to eat with all your friends before or after. That's where you hang out on the weekends. That's where the record shops and everything are. So it's always had that central feel. And it's, it's kind of funny cause we were all like, okay, we're, you know, when you get to the age, like you're out of high school, like we're moving to the city finally. And like you move into these like bad neighborhoods and dumpy warehouses and stuff. Cause you just want to be here in the city so bad. And, um, it's funny now because me and my wife, we just bought a house last year and I literally live right around the corner from this place called the Whiteford house. And that was like central base for Atlanta hardcore from like 2006 to 2010. Like that's where every band stayed when they came through town. That's where everybody kind of did like a, a term of service. You know, everybody lived in and out of that place on and off. And it's like, I don't know. It kind of feels great just living right around the corner from there. Right. It feels comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like, this is this is the thing that I know. Yeah. I, so. I, I love it, too, because it's like there are very few subcultures that have these, uh, you know, uh, uh, iconic things that are, are basically essentially meaningless to most other people. You know, like you could you could drive by that house, like 98 percent of the population of Atlanta could drive by that house and be like, oh, like that's a house. But you're like, no, like like you said, for these four years, like you had people from all across the entire world, like sleeping here, you know, creating art, all that sort of stuff. But it's just like, oh, yeah, it's kind of irre- you know irrelevant to most people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I, I, it is, they're, they're very, they're very important. And I think if, if you're involved in the scene, you kind of understand the milestone of, of places like that. It's like, there was a collected energy here and, you know, nobody lives in that house now. It's actually vacant and probably going to get knocked down because the whole neighborhood's getting, you know, all the houses are being flipped and renovated and it's, 
you know, when, when that happens, that thing won't be there. Just like the ghost of that energy will be left there. Right. And that kind of, you know, makes me, it makes me a little weepy when I think about it. Yeah. I, uh, but when we were writing Turncoat, the last record, and I was trying to think of like artwork, I, at one point was trying to convince the band and, um, my wife was a photographer and Matt Miller. I was like, Oh, we should go burn the Whiteford house down and take pictures of it and put that on. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. That would have been that would have been a pretty incredible. I mean, a very fitting demise for something that would obviously is very meaningful to you know you and the Atlanta scene. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, it's like I know that at some point somebody's going to take that from us, so it's like we might as well just destroy it ourselves. <laughs> totally. And you're like, well, you know, technically it's arson, but you know, at the same time, like people would probably understand. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm. Yes, my wife was like, I'm not okay with that, and I was like, I know, but like. It's kind of a win-win because they're going to knock it down. I'm sure the guy who owns it has like pretty good insurance on it. Like totally, he's probably. But yeah, I like how you can rationalize your way into it. You're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's probably it'll be fine. Like they'll they'll be fine. They'll they'll collect insurance money and then we've we've done a service. We've done a service. Yeah. We've done we've done something good for the community. Hey, you, you over there? I'm talking to you. Yeah, do you have any idea what your credit score is? No, you don't. Well, guess what? Neither did I until my good friends at Credit Karma. So credit scores, those two words are absolutely key to your financial reputation, and you may not even realize how important they are. Your credit score may impact important things in your life, from your car, student loans, mortgage, interest payments. But here, I'm here to solve a problem for you, right? Because that's what I do here. I do here at the show. I solve your problems. So Credit Karma, great company. What they do is they give you completely free credit reports and scores with no hidden costs or obligations. They also provide free credit monitoring so you can stay on top of your accounts and get alerts right on your phone. In fact, there are 50 million people that are signed up for Credit Karma right now. I did it. It's like the easiest thing ever. And then I got a number back and I was like, oh, wow, I've got pretty good credit. That's why I've been able to purchase a home. That's why I've been able to purchase a car and people aren't like, oh, no, 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 this guy is not trustworthy. So the more you know about that number, the easier it is for you to be able to make valuable decisions in your life. Trust me, like I'm a dad. I know what's up at this point. I've got dad knowledge and dad strength. Now I am bequeathing this upon you. So go to creditkarma.com backslash value and you never have to enter a credit card. It really is free. And what you'll be able to do is get your free credit report and scores. There's no hidden costs, no obligations whatsoever. So seriously, sign up for it, do it now, and you'll become educated. And frankly, you're going to become better than all your friends. Do you want to be better than your friends? Well, I mean, maybe not in a, in a mean, selfish way, but like, you know, you'll just have a little edge up on them. You're like, yo, I'm 750. And they're like, I have no idea what that is. And then, you know what? You Frankly, you look smarter than them. So visit creditkarma.com backslash value. Do it today and know what's up. Here, now on with the show. Uh, and, and speaking of community, like you said, you were you were born and raised basically in the Atlanta area. Like you, you but like you said, the suburbs. Yeah, I'm actually I uh, I'm one of the few people that was actually born in the city. Like I was born at a hospital down here and just lived, like I said, like 20 minutes north of the city up until high school and then moved down here and have been here ever since. Got it. And what was your uh, what's your family structure like, like a mother and father, brothers and sisters? And what did they do for a living? Um, well, my, uh, both my parents, my dad was in the military. So this is, I guess, I guess what I just said was kind of a lie because when <laughs> I was born, I, uh, we only lived here for a few months and then we moved to Germany for like the first five years of my life because my dad was in the military and he got stationed. Okay. Um, and stationed over there. And, uh, 
he, myself and my mom lived there. And then their relationship kind of came to an end because of, uh, you know, I mean, they, he, he was abusive to her. So that was a thing that we had to get out of. Sure. So I went with my mom and we moved back stateside and we moved in with, uh, her parents, you know, my grandparents on that side and lived there for about, I don't know, maybe six months. And then, I mean, this is all a really transitional period. Like when we came stateside, English wasn't my first language. So it was kind of real weird to be thrown into this environment. And then, um, we moved out and we moved into this like really crappy duplex and kind of like, not like the worst part of town, but like not a great part of town where it's like a lot of windows are boarded up and people just leave their front doors open and they're just hanging out in the, in their driveways all day. And that's kind of where I spent all of like, uh, my elementary school years up until my, uh, mom got remarried and then we, I had a little bit more of a structure there. <laughs> right. Do you, do you actually still know how to speak German? Uh, you know, the thing is, is I, when I hear it, I recognize it, but I can't do it now because I, uh, when I was younger, I had a really dramatic experience at school and I was like, I'll never speak it again. So even when, like when my grandparents would try to speak it to me, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> the, so the, you, you obviously have an affinity to a certain extent, but then if you were to actually speak it, that would bring up the, the horrific memories that you have centered around this, this, uh, this traumatic yeah. event. It's not like, you know, it's not like that. It's not like, uh, you know, if, if I, if I start speaking it, like it just brings these like terrible memories back. Uh-huh. It's just at a young age, I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to save myself the embarrassment. And just from lack of doing it, it's like, you know, degenerative. I just can't really do it anymore. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so did, uh, I didn't hear in there. Did, did you have brothers and sisters during this time? Was it just you and your oh, mom? No, I'm sorry. I, uh, only child. Okay. <laughs> Got Got it. No, I, I, I am too. We got to stick together. Because yeah. um, <laughs> so many people, I always get the question where it's just like, oh, did you like, you know, do you want brothers or sisters? And I, I mean, I love my experience of being an only child. I mean, I, I got all the attention, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the argument that people make for, for being an only child. But, uh, I, I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm like hamming this up in some way or like no. painting some, some pity story or anything like that. But like, Growing up, uh, the only position that my mom could get when, when I was a kid was working nights for uh, a company that manufactured contact lenses. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of the inverse of that. Like when I would see her, I would get a lot of attention, but I didn't see my mom most times because she was either asleep or at work. Right. So I went through this phase, like this life where I basically taught myself how to do everything as far as like, okay, I'm going to make my own breakfast. I'm going to make my own dinner. I'm going to like dress myself for school tomorrow. Right. So how, what, what were those years that you were obviously, uh, you know, basically figuring stuff out on your own? Uh, kind of liberating. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, as liberated as you can feel as like a little kid, it's kind of cool. Like you're, you're, it's weird. Cause you're, you're so young that you kind of have like this weird fear of the world where you're like, well, I don't want to go too far. Cause everything I know is in this house right here, but you're not, you're not tied down to anything. You're not tethered to, to much. So you're, you feel a little bit freer. Mm-hmm. So I can, how old, a lot of mistakes I can make on my own. <laughs> right. Sure. How, and so how old were you? Uh, this would have been from the time that I was like six up until 11. Okay. Roughly. Yeah. 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 Cause there's definitely, I, I always share this story. Like, you know, when people ask what it's like to be an only child or whatever, not like 
this is a regular topic of conversation, but uh, you know, I say, uh, I tell people it's like, Oh yeah. Like I played the board game monopoly by myself and like I had alter egos that I played against. And like, I know most people hear that and are just like, that sounds like the saddest thing I've ever heard. But like, <laughs> I look at that period of time in my life. I was like, I, I was so stoked. I did it because like it fostered this weird imagination that I had. And like all, like you said, kind of the, um, you didn't have, you weren't able to rely on anybody. It wasn't like, you know, like you said, you, you obviously were putting all these pieces together and learning about the world around you. And I think there is a lot of that, uh, uh, not, I wouldn't say handholding, but it's just a lot of the, the, the mistakes that you can make, uh, are, are sometimes really good when you're young and you're obviously in a relatively safe environment where you're not like making these catastrophic life altering mistakes, you know? Yeah. And like, I was talking to somebody about it recently and I was like, it's a, it's a thing where, and now it, it affects me now because I get really, um, almost defensive when somebody tries to critique something or, or like even, even just explain something to me because I get mad that maybe I couldn't figure it out myself. Cause that's what I've done for so long. And even when it came to like mistakes, there's, you know, my mom's asleep during the day. She's going to wake up for a brief period in the evening before I see her before she goes to work. So it's like any mistakes that I make in that time period, I have, I have time to correct them before the authoritative figure figures it out. Right, right. That's amazing. <laughs> You're like, I, I got to clean this mess up. I got to put this thing back together. Yes. That's so good. Um, and so then, uh, did you, I presume because of obviously the, uh, the fact that you, there wasn't a central father figure in your life, like you and your mom created a pretty strong bond. Yeah, we had a really strong bond when I was younger. And I think, uh, especially for my mom, she, she's been in, uh, she's been like in a couple of, of not great relationships since my dad. Right. And I think for her even more so it's like, I've, I, I have been for her like this, this one constant in her life and it kind of forces her to like cling on a little too much. And so that's caused strain later, later in my life. When I was younger, it was great because it's like, Oh, you're my mom. You love me a lot. And I love you a lot. But as you get older, it's like, okay, I'm trying to make my own way and you won't let go of me basically. Mm hmm. Oh, I, I can imagine that being a struggle, especially when you see uh, your mom, like once you start to have an awareness of the relationship pattern that she might have in uh, hooking up with with uh, guys that obviously like you're like, this is not a good scene. This reminds me of the last person of of this this particular uh, uh, you know situation. And I, I can only imagine where it's like you do have to sort of pull the tether in certain respects. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because like, I guess not not funny, but when I, when I think about that, it's, Oh, it was, it was this way. And like, like I was saying, it it was good for a certain time, but as you get older, it kind of like, it, uh, it does like, it, it's not good. It's like, it's kind of detrimental to keep hanging on so tightly. And it was, I wasn't until I was about to graduate high school that my mom stopped working nights and got like a regular job and then wanted to like hang out with me more. And it was by that point, it was kind of too late. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, I'm I got all these friends I've made at shows and stuff, and I want to hang out with them all the time. <laughs> right, totally. You're like, well, we had our time, mom. Like, this, you know, this is marking the end of this era. Yeah. Um, and so, what kind of uh, what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you obviously started to develop more of your identity in like junior high and high school? Like, were you, you know, were you a sport dude? Were you, uh, you know, really into uh, school? Like, where did you find yourself? Uh, well, I did really well in school up until high school. And then I kind of uh, checked out at that point because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really fully understand. Uh, I should preface this by saying I'm going into teaching. <laughs> Even better. 
Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really. Um, I didn't really have an appreciation for education at that point because I was, you know, I always kind of like, you know, you you know, you're a punk even when you're in like middle school. You know that you're into different things than other people. So I was already kind of on that path, and then I was like, well, I don't want to. I don't want to go on to like college and hang out with these people. I was like, that seems terrible. So it just it was it just trickled down into being like, I don't want to be here. I don't care about this place. Um, but as like as a kid, like. I don't know. I've never, I was never super into sports. You know, I like playing with my friends. I, I don't know. It's weird. I could, I could easily sit inside all day and watch movies or I could be outside all day, like playing and like hiking and riding bikes and all that stuff with my friends. So I don't know. It's weird. (laughs) Yeah. You, you strike me. I mean, even though we've been in the same rooms many times, we've just, uh, you know, we've never spoken to one another, but you give me the sense that you're obviously a relatively easygoing person. Um, so that doesn't, and especially with you being an only child, you're like, if there's opportunities, you're probably just going to do it. You're like, oh yeah, like I'll, I'll do this. And it's like, oh, no one's around to hang out today. It's like, oh, it's fine. I'll just, you know, play video games or whatever. Yes. Like I'm content to be alone, but that doesn't mean I don't like interacting with other people. Right. Which honestly, it's a very important distinction because I think most people paint uh, uh, with a very large brush the experience of being an only child as being like this total, you know, shut in and introvert. Whereas I think most people that I've met that are only children do have this really um, this desire to connect. You know, the 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 idea that's like I, I I need this and I want this, but it's not like the core central point of of your being. You know? Oh yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy now. Cause I think I, you know, as I get older, I kind of reflect on it. I'm like, as much time as I do like spending alone and kind of like having like my own headspace and stuff, I'll, I'll actually fall into that trapping where I do it too much. And I forget the value of like being around other people, including like my close friends. Now I actually need that a lot to feel sane because when I was a kid, I didn't, uh, I didn't have anybody to talk to all day. So whenever I went to school or I hung out with my friends, I was always talking and just kind of meandering and going on and being kind of like crazy and talking about silly, you know, imagination stuff that I was doing. And people were like, all right, all right, you know, just take it down a notch. I was like, sorry, like, right. Sorry. Like you kind of like word vomit because you're just sitting in this house all day and you don't have anybody to, to bounce that off of. Right. No, it's a very good point. Um, and so then, uh, I presume independent music started to infiltrate your life, like around high school is when you started to become aware of this stuff. Uh, I'd say, you know, in middle school you start, I think at least for me, that's when I, you know, like green day and all those, and like Nirvana and nine nails and all that stuff was, was very popular in, in mainstream. So, and it like, you would watch that. And even though those were the bigger kind of like mainstream bands, you could tell that they were different than the other stuff that was out there. So I naturally, like I gravitated towards that stuff. And then by the time I was getting into high school, I'd say the summer between middle school and high school was a big, big time for me. Cause that's when I found like real punk quote, quote unquote real punk that's when i found out about like fat records and epitaph bands dude that's that, that is the perfect starting off point because i imagine you're probably in your mid-30s right yeah i'm 32 yeah i'm, I'm 35 and so like we're you know, definitely the same generation where it's like once you start to you know get fat music for fat people and survival of the fattest you're just like oh dude these comps are life altering yeah i mean they were and they and it was such like a good like, I, I don't know. I, it's, I don't, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it might be weird to kind of make that, like to show the, the, the comparison or the, or the connection there. But I always kind of loved like eighties, like new wave pop music when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, like just like the hooks and the melodies, like when you listen to a band like Lagwagon or no effects, it's like, it almost, for me, it has like the same hook and melody. I'm like, yeah, this is so catchy. I just want to listen to this. And then 
when you listen to it, you find out that it's kind of about stuff and that it's like a little more like a um, rejection of like normal society. So you start to, to, you know, hold on to those values of those bands. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's an incredibly important point because I do think that it, it, that stuff is so easily uh, accessible for, for kids uh, because like you said, it has that pop sensibility. Like it isn't this, you know, overly it's aggressive, but like not to the point of where you can't understand what Joey Cape is singing about. Like you're just like, and then they have silly songs where they, you know, sing about farts and coffee and stuff like that. And you're like, that's pretty cool. But then you realize that there's, like you said, there's more layers to it. And ultimately it's just pop songs played, you know, twice as fast. Exactly. And it's like, it's, it's just, as you said, it's, it's very, if you had to show somebody that and you needed them to kind of digest it, it that would be like, that would be something that I would show them because it's, it's definitely more accessible than just putting on like a coalesque record. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, but I, I love I, you, you mentioning that just evokes a memory in my head because like y- you do get this feel like the, y- when you start to view the, you know, hardcore punk scene through your only prism and like you're not paying attention to other music around you, you're also blown away that people, other people don't understand it. Like I so distinctly remember, uh, you know, in high school, like playing Boy Sets Fire, uh, like after the eulogy, uh, some song off the record, whether it was like Rookie or something, it was a very poppy song. And like I played it for like a school project. And it was one of those things where people were just like, that's so loud and aggressive. And I was like, this is like the poppiest song ever. I don't understand what the hell's wrong with you guys. Like, you should get into this. But yeah. They, it's, people- it's funny you mentioned that that record in particular because I was like, I was kind of the leader in my neighborhood, like neighborhood group of friends who like skateboarded and stuff. Where it was like, I found out about punk and hardcore. So it was my job to kind of like influence them with it. And they all listened to, you know, Blink-182 and Coal Chamber and that was the that was like the band that I would use as like the gateway drug into hardcore. I'm like, well, check out Boy Sets Fire. Like they're kind of aggressive, and he sings. Dude, that's amazing. You always I like that because it shows the creative thought that you need to put into it. Where it's like, because you really do only get sort of one or two shots with like certain friends of yeah. introducing them to like the stuff you're into. Because otherwise, I'll just be like, oh, dude, Thomas is into that horrible screaming shit like we don't we're not into it but then you're like here's the gateway here's the one that'll get you in <laughs> yeah like this here here like this will get you in there and then we'll just build on top of that totally and then i can identify the other appropriate bands to show you at a later date absolutely yeah yeah like you said you don't just drop them off in the middle of nowhere and be like hey listen listen to uh, his hero's gone you'll probably be super into it <laughs> well you know that's i think I think honestly, I lucked out being like a product of like right at the tail end of the nineties, like going into 99 into like 2002, that was like a super influential time for me and my friends. Cause if I wanted to expose somebody at school to hardcore, that was the period of time where like a lot of bands were either playing really melodic or even like they were getting heavier, like poison the wall and stuff, but they still had these melodies so I could make my friends like mix CDs and stuff that had where I could sneak a song like Poison the Well or something even heavier like that into there. But I have all this padding around it. Right. It kind of worked. It kind of worked good because at that age, I, was, I, I took it as like my mission statement to get people into hardcore because I like nobody at my school was really into it. Like all the people that were into it had already graduated. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, crap, I'm like, I'm alone here now. So I was like, all right, I got to get other people into this. so I'm not here alone. 
and it, it worked pretty good. And that was, that was a good time for that. Right. Just, just put, just put nerdy on the mixtape and that's not, you're done. It, boom. Every, everybody likes nerdy. Totally. It was like the hit single uh, that never was a single. Yeah. Um, and so then obviously, as you, like you said, you were the, the first person to kind of, you know, uh, bring it to the troops, so to speak. Uh, did you always have that intention of wanting to start a band and play in a band? I mean, I think it was one of those things that I like daydreamed about. I was like, oh, I'll be cool to play in a band, but I didn't like, I didn't know how to play any instruments. I didn't know how to write lyrics. I didn't know how to like, you know, quote unquote sing. So I didn't really give it any real thoughts. The thing that I jumped into when I was getting involved is like booking shows. Like I wanted to like, well, I was like, well, if I can't do this thing, I'm going to try to help the people that do do it. <laughs> Got it. So, and you, uh, did you kind of like take to that pretty, pretty quickly? Like, did you, you know, understand obviously the concept of, of booking a show and like, you know, being somewhat responsible for trying to get people to come out to it or was it just, um, you, you kind of failed for a while at it? No, I like, I kind of, I kind of took to it like a, like a fish to water. I really, I really loved making flyers. I'd make flyers for other people's shows just so in case somebody hadn't got one in my area that they would, they would get it, you know? Like I remember, I distinctly remember making a flyer for an H2O Stretch Armstrong show that happened at like the big club in Atlanta that clearly everybody was going to know about because these were like huge bands on the scene. But I still made a flyer and handed it to people at my school. That's great. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a hardcore show happening. You guys got to go to it. <laughs> So even though you, like you said, you high school, you kind of fell off as far as, uh, you know, paying attention to education. It seemed like you did have sort of a, um, an entrepreneurial spirit inside of you of like uh, trying to evangelize to people why the stuff that you're into is valid in some capacity. Absolutely. I mean, I still do it to this day. Right. (laughs) That's true. Once you do that, it definitely doesn't uh, get shaken out of you. Like it's just, that's who you are. It's something that I'll never not be able to try to sell to somebody, you know, if that makes any sense. Like it's funny. Cause like I, I come at it where I'm like trying to sell this, this, this product. If you like, it's not a product. It's, it's not, you know, I, I'm not, I don't mean to like devalue it by saying that. So please. Right. Yeah. You're not, <laughs> you're, you're not monetizing it. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to sell this product to somebody who doesn't know what it is. And it's like, I take so much like, I invest so much personally into that because I want people to know about this because I think it's, it's a great thing. I don't know. Sorry. I, I just got off topic. No, no, dude. I, I, I love it because I do think, uh, I mean, these, these are discussions I don't regularly have on the show, but it, it's such an important point because I do think that we, I mean, I, I can speak for myself and I can imagine I can speak for you as well, where it's like, we feel so lucky that we got like thrown into this at the age that we did. And then it's given us, you know, philosophical beliefs. It's given us this like backbone to stand on in everything else. Cause you know, whether or not you, like you mentioned, you're, uh, you know, you're going into the teaching profession, the parallels between, uh, you know, playing in a band and getting in front of people and teaching, like it's almost one-to-one, like I can directly compare the two and like, make a very, very valid argument for that. And so I think that, uh, that's why we feel so passionate about spreading the word is not just because like, Oh, here's some sick mosh riffs, but it's like, dude, like this is the shit that you will take in for years and years to come. I mean, it's like uh, another thing, me and my wife are pregnant and like, these are, these are the values that I'm going to pass on to my child, you know, like right. Every, everything I, I learned in life, I learned from like a minor threat record, as cheesy as that sounds. And I'm going to take those ideas and those values. And I'm going to pass that on to my kid who isn't going to know what minor threat is until she's much older. 
you know, or have an understanding, but she's going to know, she's going to understand these values and that's where they came from. Like that's, that's what blows my mind. Like, I don't know. Well, it, it, I love hardcore. No, totally, dude. I you meet in the same in the same boat because I do think that there is something that's so inherently interesting now because we are of of an age where uh, you know hardcore and punk it, we are technically whatever second or third generation, but it, it seeped into the culture so much that it's like people from all walks of life who are doing so many different things with their talents that have been so directly influenced by independent music um, are now shaping culture in ways that we can't even you know comprehend whether it's like you know the comedy world and movies or whatever it's like all these people have came from the same scene that we have and have those same experiences and want to shout it on you know certain different rooftops you know to varying degrees but it is that important you know through line where it's just like okay now now our children will know about all this stuff because we heard it from earth's crisis record it's just like that's mind-blowing it you know you the thing you just said like it's crazy because that is what's happening the people who like came up in hardcore and got all their values and ideas from it are going off into like, you know, the, the civilian world and building great things off of those ideas. And that blows my mind that we like live in a time where that's happening. Right. And it, and it can be like digested to a point where people are like, oh, I may not like the music, but I understand the principles behind it, you know? And that's like, oh, oh my God, like, I can't believe that. Yes. Um, yeah, that's good. Sorry. We will, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll try to calm us both down for speaking about why independent music is so good. But, um, so then, uh, w- foundation wasn't your first band that you played in, correct? It was not. <laughs> okay. Please, please, please divulge your first sort of musical experience from that perspective. Uh, the first band I ever played in was, a a, a band called final expression Very and nice unbroken tip. Yeah. Uh, I was like obsessed with unbroken, this is like right after high school. I was just like, I was like, I don't think there's a better band than Unbroken. I like it. If you show it to me, I won't believe it. Like, <laughs> Dude, just, totally. so like, that's where I came from. I was like, I want to do a band that's kind of like aesthetically like darker, like Unbroken was. And, you know, I, I looked at like uh, Dave Claiborne's lyrics. I was like, okay, like those are the kind of lyrics I want to write. And so we started this band, me and my friends, uh, uh, this guy, Blake Connolly, who actually went on to play in that band, Dead in the Dirt. Absolutely. And uh, our friend, uh, uh, Evil Sean, is his name. <laughs> He's an amazing drummer. He's never been in any uh, bands that have really broken out of Atlanta. But he, you know, you might have actually met him because he played drums on that Power and the Glory tour that went around, I think, that time in the U.S. Okay, sure, yeah. Filled in for drums for them. He's great. And you know, he, he plays in a band here called Cloak. They're really good, too. But uh, it was basically a trio. And we, we wrote all this stuff in Sean's house and uh, recorded with our friend Anthony. But it, it was... I'm trying to think how to describe it. It sounded like really early Converge records, like really early Converge stuff, like Unloved. Like first, out. I was going to say like first seven inch. <laughs> yeah. Like that kind of stuff where it was like, you know, it was very disjointed and there'd be like a little bit of like a weird melody that had like a lot of dissonance to it. And then it'd be like really crunchy and aggressive. And I had like a really high pitched voice at that time for some reason. Mm-hmm. So that was our, our first, uh, you know, experience playing in a band and we only ever played for like maybe a year or so in the Atlanta area and put up two demos that are not worth looking for. If anybody is thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. And obviously uh, you're of an age too, where it's like, it, it's, you're very thankful that uh, a lot of the stuff obviously didn't immediately go up on, on MySpace or, or Bandcamp, And obviously is there warts and all for everybody to listen to, to be like, Oh wow. Like this is how terrible you, this person was back in the day. 
Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's understandably bad because we are just kids. This is our, this is our first band together. We don't really know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. imagine that's why it sounded like the first converge stuff. Cause I imagine they had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> of course. Everyone needs to be, I always find it funny when it's like, uh, you know, I have people on the show and you can obviously tell when it's like, this is their first band and like, not a bad way, but it's like, you know, if, whatever speaking to Davey Havoc from AFI, it's like, that's t- t- technically his first band and it's like that's fucking insane but it's like but then you look at the through line of every afi record and you're like oh yeah like most people would listen to the first afi record answer that and stay fashionable and be like that's awful like yes you listen to that band and you go oh okay i can kind of see where it's same thing with far side i'm mentioning that because i'm looking at a record right now and i'm like if you listen to the first far side seven inch and then you listen to the monroe doctrine like you're like what the hell is going on in this band? It's like, no, they're just figuring themselves out and like getting better at their instruments. Totally. They're becoming, they're becoming musicians. And I yeah. use that in air quotes. <laughs> right. Totally. Um, and so then uh, did foundation come obviously after that? And how long after that? Um, I'd say, so it was, there was a parallel happening. Uh, champ played in this like mildly successful hardcore band from here called instilled. Oh yes, I that we like that the whole city put their hopes and dreams into. We're like, all right, this is going to be the band that leaves Atlanta and like and like puts our city on the map. We could just feel it down our bones. Well, dude, I remember too that you just brought back a memory where it was like I was I worked at the record label Century Media for a long time, and I was doing like A and R scouting and stuff like that. And I remember, uh, I know people will have wildly differing opinions of this human being, but like Hunter from Love Is Red, like yeah. we were going to potentially sign Love Is Red, and then it was like I think Hunter, I want to say he showed me instilled in some way, shape, or form. But I just remember it was like, oh wow, there's a lot of stuff bubbling up in Atlanta. But that's so funny. Yeah. So they were like, they were, they were up and they were kind of like crushing it. Like there was a point where they had to be the headlining band on any show they played. Didn't matter if it was like the bigger touring band was coming through because that's who people went to go see. Wow. Which I kind of love. Like when you have like that type of loyalty in your scene, but they, uh, they were coming up, we started final expression and we were all, you know, we were all friends. We'd all been coming up together and then final expression did their thing. We broke up or whatever. And then it still broke up. And then from the ashes of instilled, they started that band depression, which actually Hunter sang for as well. And it was like kind of the end of love is red, the end of love uh, of instilled. So they started this band depression that played like a, you know, they played a couple out of town shows, but not much. And then uh, I'm trying to think this is like over the span of a year, right? These, these younger kids who had done a band called cold stare from Atlanta. That was really good too. They started, they technically started Foundation. It was this kid, David Pagostin and Andrew Wright. And they contacted me and they're like, hey, do you want to sing in a hardcore band? And I was like, okay. I was like, what are you guys, what are you guys thinking? And they like, they're like, well, we want to do something that's kind of like, uh, like early new age records, like some outspoken, unbroken, undertow, that type of feel. And I was like, okay, cool. I can get on board with that. I like, I like, I like all those bands. Right. So I, you know, I went to a couple of practices and we had the drummer, uh, this kid, Billy drumming for us from that band overdose. So this is like, doesn't really matter, but, uh, dude, I, all, all, anytime people pepper details like that in, it it always makes me happy because usually people are like, Oh, that's so sick. They mentioned that band or whatever. So so he he was drumming for us for, I mean, we hadn't even played any shows yet or anything. We were just still, still like writing songs and he decided that he didn't want to do it. He wanted to concentrate on overdose and like literally the same weekend he decided that depression broke up and we were like, Oh, like we got to get champ to play drums for us. Champ is like the sickest drummer. Mm-hmm. So we went to this show 
like we went to their last show, which was uh, on that Gorilla Biscuits reunion tour that happened back in like '06 or '05. Mm-hmm. And we're like, "Will you play in this band?" And he was like, "Oh yeah, I guess." Like, "Yeah, okay, I'll do it." Kind of talked him into it. And uh, this is this is another this is another little fun fact. Uh, he was like, "What's the band called?" And we said, "It's called Turnstile." <laughs> so good. Named after the Hot Water Music song, of course. And he was like. He's like, that name, he's like, I don't like it. We got to change the band. <laughs> so so three of us who like the band name gave in to one person because we wanted to play drums in the band so bad. Dude, so good. You're like, whatever whatever you want, whatever Champ wants, he gets. Yeah, exactly. That's great. I'd say it worked out for the better anyway. It, we got Champ, which was the most important component to the, to the band at the time. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, yeah, I mean, especially too, because like as the time goes on, like coming up with a band name, I mean, I can't even... I can't even imagine people doing it now. It's like, and not even for the sake, like, oh, it was better back then, but just like, dude, there's, you're just running out of words in the English language to potentially either combine or just use as a solitary statement. It's rough. It's, 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 I mean, foundation is like the most unoriginal (laughs) hardcore band name. There's already been, you know, lesser hardcore bands, not, not to say that they were not good, but they didn't really go anywhere. Hardcore bands with that name that put out records uh, there was also it's not, it's not it's not a great name, but it, it worked <laughs> totally. There was also I actually it originally got confused too because the uh, one of the guitar players in Ann Beretta had yeah a, his solo project exactly, and I, I was like, wait a minute, is this the same band? But then of course, like there's like four people that are gonna know that, so I, I got it while you guys did that. <laughs> well, it was it was that the guy. So the guy who does that, I can't remember his name. He's I've never even met him. I only saw Ann Beretta like a couple of times. He's got to be the greatest person ever because when he found out about us, the other foundation, he just didn't care. He was like, he's like, I'll continue doing what I'm doing. They'll do what they do. He's like, I don't think anybody's going to confuse it. Like, you know, which foundation you're going to go see. Right, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so like, very hey, admirable of him. <laughs> thought we we're going to have to change our band name again. And I was like, damn it. We'd already kind of started doing this. Totally. With this name. Um, and so, uh, kind of, you know, kind of reflecting on obviously the band's uh, early years. Like, when did you first feel like people started, uh, obviously outside of the Atlanta scene, um, start to kind of pay attention to what you guys are doing? Because to me, as an outsider, obviously I'm in Southern California, and uh, you know, became aware of you guys. Uh, I, I would say it was probably after the second seven inches when it started to, you know, really percolate in my head. Um, but did you notice kind of people around the country gravitating towards your band pretty early or did you feel like it was like, Oh, we had already existed for a while. So, um, not like you expected people to care about what you were doing, but like, Oh, like that's cool that people are catching on at this joint. It's, uh, I'm trying to think, I think the time that like, I felt like it was kind of coming into its own, like by itself without any, anybody's help or outside influence was when we put out hang your head and that was like the first real full us tour that we kind of did on our own. we went out to sound and fury and played there and came back and that was in Oh nine, I think. Mm-hmm. So for the first like three years up to that, we'd put out the very first seven inch, uh, with eightfold path. And then we put out the never stops raining single with uh triple B and those kind of got notoriety, but it was more so like people we'd already known who were kind of putting us on in their town if that makes any sense right like we, we had made friends in other places and they were rocking our record so they were telling their friends but it wasn't like some kid out in the midwest was keen to who foundation was right and i think when that record came out because you know dave sausage is like he runs a bigger label so people kind of pay attention to what six feet under is doing 
people caught on to that. And then we did, that was the summer that we did the three U S tours. And it was like, okay, people are starting to remember the seven inch songs. I have one more fun partner to speak to you about. And that is our good friends at Weebly. So what does Weebly do? Well, first of all, do you have any idea how to build a website? If I put a computer in front of you, would you have any idea? You would look at a line of code and you would be like, yo, I don't know what any of that is, but that makes a website. So what Weebly does is it gives you all of the tools and everything you need to build your own website. I know that sounds like mind-blowingly weird that they would be able to do that, but trust me, they know what's up. So what they do is they give people the courage to start their own business and dream to be their own boss. Because, you know, at at the end of the day, we all want to be answering to ourselves and really nobody else. So you don't need to be a web designer or know how to code at all to make a beautiful website, blog, or online store. And trust me, they got the stuff on lock. So they have a wide variety of options, drag and drop. They they basically, they make, they take the guesswork out of everything that it is to create a website. So you can truly customize and update and change your site anytime you want. And this is the most important part on any device. You can be on your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever it is, you can change it and make it awesome. So here, join the 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at Weebly.com slash words. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash words. So seriously, there's no reason why you can't sign up. Have fun with this. I mean, even if it's just a simple site for yourself, or maybe like your brother's getting married and you're like, yo, I could build him a site and that way it'll have all this info. So go to weebly.com slash words, please do it. They're a great company. And was it ever, cause even though you guys, obviously, like you said, you did a ton of touring when you were kind of uh, available. Cause like, I get the sense that you guys were obviously still doing school. Like you were still, you didn't put all the eggs in the let's tour 10 months out of the year basket. Or am I am I wrong in that statement? Like you guys seem to have like a, a I would say balanced life at home, but you guys were trying to like live in both of those worlds because you weren't sure exactly um, where where the band was going to go. So we we definitely tried to tour as much as possible, but uh, the, none of, nobody else in the band really had anything going on except for Andrew, our guitar player. He was still in college, mm-hmm. and he was finishing that. So we basically toured around his college schedule. But I mean, anytime he wasn't in school, we were off playing weekends in like Florida or we'd go up to the Carolinas, any extended period of time, like a week or something, we would go up and down the East coast. And then during the summer, obviously we were just gone the whole time. So we, you know, we wanted to play, I mean, we probably, if, if it had been afforded to us, we would have probably been on tour 10 months out of the year. Cause we're, we're not smart, like to not do that. <laughs> right. You were you were pretty uh, practical as a band to be like, okay, we know that we can't do this just from a sheer financial <laughs> ruin that this could put us into. Well, I mean, it wasn't even that. We we did plenty of tours. Where we were like, there's, I know that we're not gonna like come out on top at the end of this, and like, and not like in a way where it was like, yeah, we're eating good on tour or anything like that. Like, just we're definitely not gonna be able to pay our rent while we're gone, so we're gonna have to sell everything we own when we get home. But we would do it anyway because we wanted to get out there and we wanted to play and we wanted to go on tour with our friends. I think the thing that stopped us was we didn't want to tour without people who were in the band. So like, I didn't want to go on tour without Andrew playing guitar for us. Like we could have got a fill in, but I didn't want to do that. Right. Right. I don't think anybody else did either. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. You guys wanted to be the unit that you were as opposed to, you know, trying to push forward an agenda with four fifths of you there. Yes. Um, 
And did you, just because you obviously were very uh, opinionated uh, lyrically in regards to, um, you know, whether, whether it was, uh, you know, being straight edge, whether it was obviously, you know, having some ethics rooted as far as, uh, you know, animals are concerned. Um, obviously when you're preaching to the hardcore crowd, that is kind of expected, but like, did you guys get any sort of feedback or flack from people being like, Oh great. Like here's another, you know, Atlanta band saying something about straight edge or whatever, like real, real original. Um, or did you guys kind of, um, you know, go underneath that? No, I mean, we never got any, I don't think, at least knowingly, that we got any flack for being outspoken about anything. Um, uh, we were just a straight-edge band. Like, not all of us are uh, vegetarian or vegan. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, I don't think we ever got too much, too much flack on that. I think what would happen is we would, get, we would get grief in our own hometown for being, like, for just being straight-edge. Like, not talking about it. Like, sometimes people like, oh, like, cool straight-edge dudes. Like, you know, the sarcastic guy who's washed out six months ago right like some smart ass comment to make at a show <laughs> right right yeah but nothing like nobody ever like just dogging us out for anything we ever said no that's cool um and, and it did seem like there was a, a time maybe like whatever whatever 2010 2011 maybe a little bit uh, after that where it was like it did feel and, and i find it so bizarre how how hardcore exists in this weird fast moving world where it's like one summer a band can be like the hottest shit ever and then like sometimes even less than six months later it's like oh that that was cool but like not as cool as this thing and i understand it's kind of hardcore and punk in general is a microcosm of the real world yeah Uh, but I, i i did feel where it was like all of a sudden the uh momentum was kind of let out and not even because you guys weren't working or weren't releasing quality music in my opinion but the 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 fickleness that is the quote-unquote scene and granted i'm painting a very large brush with that statement um but did you did you kind of personally notice it where it was like oh wow like you know there's less people showing up to the shows or people didn't seem to like this particular thing that we put out um i mean i'm sure there's a lot of thoughts wrapped up into that but i just i always find it weird and that's why i wanted to ask you about it to see if you noticed no i never i never felt that way about it i just I, you know, I never like, I like even, even up until our last show, I would just go into a show like honest, like not assuming anything about it. Like, I don't, I don't know what people's tastes are. I don't like it. Does anybody, does anybody care about this band anymore? You know, like, I'm not going to be like, well, we're here. Where is everybody? Like, <laughs> you know, it's just people come and go. And I just always kind of chopped it up to that. They're like, okay, like they're just not here this time, whatever. But I think what happened, especially around like 2011, 2012 is that we were kind of hitting a stride where we were like, well, we can tour more and like we can do bigger tours and we weren't like losing our arms in the process. And that was like, when we were like, okay, we don't want to tour anymore. <laughs> right. Like, we'll just, we'll just like stay at home and we'll kind of do, do some things every once in a while. Right. Do you guys like have a sit down band meeting about this and kind of deliberately decide that? Or was it kind of a, you know, just a logical evolution? No, I think it was weird. Like we did the, we did the comeback kid tour, which was really awesome. And like, it was fun hanging out with those guys and just like kind of play, playing to a different crowd that we would normally get to play to. And, uh, which like, I still, I still stand by a hundred percent because I'm like, there's going to be a kid who like, like, you know, uh, is on the fringe of like punk and hardcore it comes to that show. And maybe he hears foundation and that causes he or she that causes them to like explore other hardcore bands beyond us. And like, I always look at that as a positive, but it was on that tour. I could kind of just feel that 
like, okay, like we weren't like Andrew didn't do the tour with us. That was the first time we'd really done like an extended period of time without somebody. And it didn't like, it didn't sit right while we were there. And it, I don't know. It just, you could feel something in the van. Like, mm. okay, this is something that we want to like do all the time. Interesting. So like you saw, like you could see the path ahead of you where it was like, okay, we can, like you said, we can do this. We can be this sort of band. Um, but like you didn't really necessarily like the, the, the path that it was headed down. So that's why you guys kind of diverted. Well, I think, yeah. And I think a big, a big component of the band for us is like everybody came into the band with a certain fear that, cause you know, you see it happen to other bands all the time where it's like the band burns you out on either the friendships that you have in the band. And we didn't want that to happen or the band itself burns you out on hardcore and you don't, you just don't want to go to shows um, or like really be a participant anymore. And I think we, we all kind of knew that we didn't want that to happen to us. Right. Like we all still wanted to be friends. We all knew that we still wanted to be very active in our own scene back at home. And like, I mean, anybody who's ever been in like an extended, like a band that tours a lot, like those, are, those are the casualties. Like that's what happens mm-hmm. when you're in this condenser all the time. Right. Well, it, it is an interesting point you bring up too, of the idea that when you're so involved in uh, the local scene, like whether that's either playing shows, promoting, doing whatever it is that you're doing to contribute to the local scene, once you are absent from it, um, not only do you feel it, but then, you know, the scene changes in certain ways in certain respects. And so then, and then you come back and you're like, Oh wow. Like that's different. Like even if it's small things, you're like, Oh, that's, that's weird. Like the, the, yeah, venue, like, the venue put up the little merch table back there. Oh, that's weird. Like, yeah, I, I totally understand that. Cause you're, you're basically, you're like this representative, this, you know, this representative of your scene and then you leave and you're gone for two or three months and then you come back and yeah, things have changed. And it's not like we didn't have our input in on it. It was, it's nothing like that. It's just like you get back and things just feel different. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't know. That's, it's, it's rough. You, you understand you've been on tour. No, totally. And I, I just, I find it so, cause usually the, the notion is where it's like looking at a band, like what you guys were and the momentum that you had. And the fact that, like you said, you could see the pervert, you know, you could turn into a band like terror, like not saying that terror has made a wrong decision by what they've done because clearly, you know, they're happy with it. Uh, or at least from the out, out, outside perspective it is. Um, but like, you know, the idea of like quote unquote leaving money on the table, you know, it's just like, Oh, well you could have been, you know, you could have done foundation for another five to seven years and done this thing and gone to Indonesia or whatever, you know, but then you, but then you look at the flip side of it, which I think most people don't look at the flip side, you know, they don't look at the, the fallouts. Like you said, everything that made you guys decide what you did, um, you know, a lot of people don't consider that just because either it's not regularly spoken about or it's not something that, uh, you know, the, the bright, shiny lights are, are, are bigger. And when I use that in air quotes, cause obviously bright, shiny lights don't necessarily equate to hardcore, but, um, yeah. you get the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, it's, especially when it comes to the end of the band, there just comes a point where we're like, what else could we possibly do? Like, okay, we didn't go to South America. That was basically it. We've been where else multiple times. We've made tons of friendships. We've played some of the craziest shows. We've played with bands that we've like held as like heroes for years. You know, like we've shared the stage with like trial and Bane and terror and Hatebreed and all these other bands. And it's like, what more could we possibly get out of this band? And I feel like, you know, at the end of it, like the last record we put out, I feel like those are the best songs that we'll ever write. And I don't want to like diminish that in any way. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to string it along. Um, 
last two things I want to hit on before I let you go is the, um, so obviously the, in, in the wind down of the band, because you, you know, this was a deliberate plan. Um, was it, uh, I, I presume in certain respects, it felt bittersweet because you were, uh, you knew the end was coming, you know, like it wasn't this, you know, blowout where it's like, Oh wow, that was our last show because everybody argued and they broke up. It's not like Texas is the reason where people are like, Oh my gosh, we broke up in Germany and <laughs> no one knows why. Um, so like, was it bittersweet for you rolling up to these final shows? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when I wrote, when I wrote the, uh, you know, the, the manifesto about the band breaking up at the end, I, 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 you know, I really noted in there that like, this would be easier to do if we didn't like each other or that we didn't care about this band, but we like, we do care about the band and we do like, we love each other. Like we're all really close friends. So it makes it hard to, to do something like that, to just put it down and walk away and it, you know, after we played the last show, like everything leading up to it, like all these, all these last shows, I've been like, I almost took them for granted. Like I would forget like halfway through them that like, Oh yeah, this is the last time we're ever going to come here. And this might be the last time I see these people for a really long time, you know, cause when you're on tour, it's like, Oh yeah, we'll just see those people in a few months. But when you're not on tour, who knows when you're going to run into them again, unless they're on tour and they come to your town. And I, I would catch myself and be like, no, like just like sit in the moment for a second. Like I'm really bad at that. I'm very either stuck in the past or like thinking about the future. It's like hard for me to be in the moment. And I really try to be like mindful of that. Like, okay, just take this in for a second. This is the last time you're going to be in like Southern California. This is the last time you're going to be in Seattle. It's the last time you're going to be in Detroit. This is the last time you're going to be in Long Island, like playing here. And then even at the last show, I would watch every band play their set and be like, this is the last time I'm like, going to get to share the stage with harm's way or King nine or indecision or like, this is going to be the last time that like all of our friends are here together and like for this, like one collected reason, you know? Right. And it was, it was super bittersweet. I like, we put, like, I thought I was going to cry before we started playing and like somehow I got through the entire set. And as soon as I walked off stage, it was like in a movie, somebody had put on this Abner J song and I just like went in the back and I just sobbed. Mm-hmm sobbed and sobbed until Ryan braces walked up and I was like, Oh, what's up, man? Like I got some stuff in my eyes. Like (laughs) you got a little dusty in the back room. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so then obviously like you, you've mentioned that you're, you're training, well not training, you're learning to become a teacher, obviously going through school and uh, showing the fact that you uh, obviously care about education now. Um, talk to me, talk to me about that process. Cause I do find it interesting where it's like, uh, the notion is that most people, uh, especially that are affiliated with punk and hardcore, it's like, Oh, school's dumb. Like you don't need that shit or whatever. Like the, the, all those, you know, really common tropes. Um, but clearly it impacted you at some point. So like when did teaching kind of become, uh, something that you were interested in doing? I think it's, I think from being on tour, I realized that like kind of what I was doing, like this, this I, I hate saying this cause it, like, I feel like it paints some type of like, puts me in some type of light that I really shouldn't be in. But I feel like I would get up on stage and, you know, you've, you've seen foundation. We don't just get up there and play. Like I, I'm always going to say something regardless if it's coherent or not. Right. So like to an extent that was kind of like teaching, like, Hey, the, the, this is what this song is about. Let me dissect it for you. Let me tell you where it comes from. You know, like. I feel like in in a regard that was kind of like teaching. And I was like, I think that that's something I could do. And really even with, with foundation, like so many people would come up to us and be like, Oh, you know, like this song really changed my life. And you, you guys really got me through a difficult time. And a lot of times it's like, it's hard to like sit with that. Cause you're like, Oh, I feel so like responsible for that. But 
I, it made me feel like, like maybe I was helping somebody and I want to continue to do that. I want to help people. And like the kind of teaching I plan on doing, I'm like, I'm not just going to be a content teacher. I'm hopefully going to be giving people like life skills, like to get through, to get through life. Cause it's, it's not easy for some, for some people. <laughs> No, I agree. I mean, my, uh, my mother was a high school English teacher and she retired a couple of years ago. My wife is a high school English teacher. And so like, I have such a, the utmost respect, not only for the profession, but then seeing firsthand what, um, you know, these really important women in my life do for these kids. It's like, it really isn't just teaching English. It's like about being that shoulder to cry on when, um, you know, their, uh, their family members don't have enough money to buy diapers for their new sister. And granted, like that's a very extreme example, but it's like, it can be something that large or something as small as like, you know, you're one of your students just likes to hang out with you for 15 minutes at the end of the day. And that's a really meaningful thing to them. And you never know what that sort of impact that will give. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the one of the driving things for me, especially going into the field, is that because I stopped valuing education so much in high school, which was ridiculous. Like I didn't ever stop really valuing it. I just put value in a different education. Like I was getting all of my information from Chokehold and his Heroes Gone Records and of course. Minor Threat lyrics. I was like, oh, that's the truth right there. Like that's the real information. Totally. So I was learning in a, in a new capacity. So like, but I, I want like I didn't have anybody. For me at that age, that was like, I, I understand that the system is like fucked up. And I understand that school is full of these like terrible cliques and people are just mean towards each other. But that's not what you should get from this. What you should get from this is like to be a seeker of knowledge. Yeah. And like I, somebody had told me that and then I would have like, you know, I would have uh, sought it out and kind of pursued that drive. But I didn't have anybody there for me. So I didn't. And I want to do that for somebody else. Like I want, I want to be like, Look, I know that this sucks. I know that this is hard, but there there is a value here, you know, and it's not just like going through the motions or like, you know, understanding what Shakespeare said in this, in this, you know, this piece of writing. It's like, there's something here that is about the pursuit of knowledge. And if you continue to do that through your life, you'll be well equipped to deal with a lot of things. Yeah, totally. No, it's very eloquently put because it is most of the experience of high school should be reflective on not so much the fact that you can memorize the periodic table or, you know, learn algebra and solve for X. It's the fact that hopefully one of these things that you get introduced to will kind of scratch that like you said, that quest for knowledge, it'll scratch that itch and it'll send you off in a whole different direction where you're just like, yo, science is sick. I love that. Like English, no way. Like you'll, that's the whole, that's the whole point. And it's like, if you're not encouraged, like you said, you'll end up in a place where it's like the entire experience is tainted because you're just like, Oh, I just, whatever. I I don't care about anything and related to school. It's like, well, no, you probably do. You just don't think about it. Those terms. Yeah. I mean, I didn't go to college until I was in my late twenties. And like, I love college. <laughs> right. I literally loved every class I've taken, even the really terribly hard ones. Like I just finished up the calculus sequence and like I loved every second of that no matter how hard it was at times. <laughs> right, right. And so you you, you play, what do you plan on teaching? Mathematics. Okay, yeah, there you yeah. you're teaching the real world shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and I, I just because you mentioned this earlier and I obviously I I'm I find it so interesting just because I myself have a five-year-old son. So you, when is your daughter due? Uh, we're due October 17th. If she, if she gets with the, gets with the program, sure. she'll be born on edge day. Oh, oh my God. That's huge. Yes. So yeah. cl- clearly you'll have to have an edge day show celebration. Yeah, absolutely. My wife would love that. We'll just set it up right in the, uh, in the, the birthing area. <laughs> totally. She'd love that. All, all your friends watching the whole experience. Um, 
But so like, uh, obviously, because you were on the, uh, you know, precipice of childbirth, is it one of those things where, um, you know, you're viewing a lot of things a different way or is it just kind of like the call before the storm, so to speak? I'd say right now it's kind of the calm before the storm. It's, it seems a little too early to, to like get like, you know, right, right into the heart of it. But when I do, do stop and think about it, I do, I do kind of get like, I get, I get, uh, I get weird about like certain things. Like I'll walk into our, our spare bedroom, which is like going to be the nursery. And I'll just think about like, my kid is going to like find herself in this room. Right. You know, like my, my mom just sent me a picture that she's like, converted your old bedroom into like uh the baby's room for when you guys come over here and i was like like i'm tying i'm tying this all together now like and it's gonna sound cheesy but it's like like that's where i listened to the gorilla biscuits for the first time was in that room and like that's that's where i found myself that's like that's the that's the spot that's the right ground zero to for creating the person that i am today and she's gonna have that experience in this house so i look in that room and I'm like, oh my god! Like that's where it could all, that's where it could all lead somewhere great, or it could go terribly wrong. Right, right. No, yeah. It's like that's that's where uh, that's where the experience is. Like this is more than just a space or a room. Like this is this is everything. You know, it's like these yeah. these four walls that like because like I always love the notion of people uh, trying to uh, say that like you're ready to like have a child. It's like no one wakes up one day and is like, you know what? I I'm ready. I am physically ready to have a child. It's like no one wakes up and does that, but it's like you just figure it out and you do it. And I mean, one thing that you'll probably find in the parenting experience is that like no one has any idea what they're doing. Like everyone has the best practices and best information. And of course our parents did so many things wrong that, you know, their parents probably did wrong as well. And it just goes back generation to generation. And then you realize that no one has any idea. We're all just taking stabs in the dark, trying our best to put our best foot forward. But like, I really find it charming the way that you just describe that, the space where it's like that, that's something that you can become wistful for and be like, wow, like this is not only a heavy responsibility, but it's just full of excitement too. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I, I know that nobody knows what they're doing because I'm, I'm actually lucky enough that, um, champ, uh, my best friend, drummer of foundation, is they're pregnant as well and they're going to be they're due in August and I don't have to go through it alone. Right. So, you know, as they say, two two wrongs do make a right. right. So <laughs> You guys yeah, you guys can be like, "All right. Maybe maybe one of these kids can come out relatively unscathed." No, it's great cuz like if I make a mistake, I can tell him about it and so he doesn't make it and you know, vice versa, he can make the mistake and be like, "Don't do that. I did it and it did not work right." Totally, totally. No, that's cool. Well, I'm 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 very excited for uh, not only you but obviously Champ as well. And that's uh, it's just it's great when you obviously see uh, you know people like we've been you know pining over uh, <laughs> this past hour, people that are obviously coming from our scene and being able to instill values that are are not of the norm and be like, oh, like there's a different way that you can view the world and not just the the you know standard cookie cutter way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, dude. Honestly, I really, really appreciate you hanging out with me. No, thank you. As a PS to this interview, uh, Thomas did not mention two ex-members of Foundation that he said or he did not mention during the interview. Hank and Caleb or Kaleeb. Sorry, um, horrible pronunciation, but he wanted to give those dudes a shout out because he didn't mention them in the interview. And how sweet is that? So yeah, here now here's the real intro. So there was Thomas. Great dude, right? 
And I appreciate for him to take the time out of his schedule because I know I think the day that we recorded it, he had a test or something. Uh, but he so he's busy, and I just I find it so nice that people when I approach them and they're like, "Hey, would you like to uh, come on the show and talk about yourself?" You know, most people obviously like that idea, but uh, just to take the time and fit it into their schedules, it's it's always so nice and humbling, and that means uh, you know the show is worth something, and that also makes me feel the warm and fuzzies inside. So, yes, and please support the sponsors of the show because they obviously make things happen for me over here uh, by obviously giving me money in order to justify talking into microphones to my wife and my child who are like, hey, what are you doing this thing for? And it's like, well, honey, I'm making money. (laughs) Even though that is a complete side effect of why I'm doing this in the first place, but you get the point nonetheless. Um, let's see. Next week is a, uh, it's a very, very insightful and interesting interview with a, a guy named Andy Ostling. He is from a project slash band called Lowercase Noises. And, um, I'm, I'm just very excited about this conversation because we went into some really, really introspective and deep places because he is a deep dude. He's definitely not just uh, your surface level guy. And uh, Lowercase Noises, as you know, supplies the music for this show. So that is uh, one of the things that uh, came about our relationship. And uh, he was excited to contribute. And I was so excited to have that music as a nice little bed for everything we do at this show. So, yeah, until next week, please be safe, everybody, on your summer travels, and, um, yeah, enjoy yourselves. Be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.